a poem for Proverbs. Okay, so I gotta deep dive this thing and really understand my role. I go where you lead and go beyond what I know. Are you sure? Because I plan. I tend to execute. I follow through. And you say your wisdom does not lead to execution, but birth. Whew. So this difference between starting a thing and making it new is decided between what I do on my own and what I give to you. It's the mouse and the wheel versus the bird in the sky. And the path we take depends on whose sight we rely. Okay. Okay. Hey guys, so good to see you. My name is Pete, I'm one of the pastors here at Northridge and uh, we're so glad you're here. We want to welcome those of you in Brighton. We're so excited that you are with us as well. We're in this series called the Proverbial New Year's Series and we've been looking at the book of Proverbs for the past few weeks. Pastor Brad has masterfully been kind of teaching through it. It's been a really convicting series for me and I love the book of Proverbs. Like for me, if I could kind of sum up the book of Proverbs in 16 words or less. Um, I don't have a counter, but I would say it means to me, or it's taught me, first of all, sin is stupid. That's three words, right? Sin is stupid. And also, it teaches me what the good life actually is. See, it's so easy to sometimes forget how stupid sin is. It's so easy to start to buy in to this idea that maybe somehow it will pay off for us, even though it hasn't paid off for others. And at the same time, what the book of Proverbs does is it gives us this vision for what the good life could be. And that's important because as human beings, we're going to pursue whatever we've determined is the good life. And you can allow culture to define what the good life is for you, or you can allow God's word to define for you what the good life is. And that's what Proverbs really does. And I love this idea of the book of Proverbs and starting a new year with it because it's full of this incredible wisdom, right? And this wisdom is just living life in light of the truth. And it's not just knowledge, right? It's the application of knowledge. And the big problem that I think we have in the church is not a knowledge problem, for the most part. It's not a knowledge problem. Most of us have a lot of knowledge. A lot of you have sat in church for decades, right? You've got a lot of knowledge. I don't think we have a knowledge problem. What we have is an application problem. Right? That's where it lies. We know the right things to do. We just don't often apply it to our lives. And today, we're going to jump into this topic of pride and see what the book of Proverbs has to say about pride and how pride can diminish so much of what God wants to do in and through our lives. Now, the problem with talking about a topic like pride, the big challenge inside of this, is that most of us who struggle with pride don't know that we struggle with pride, right? It's one of those things that's really hard to kind of identify in our life. And even if you have been able to identify pride in our culture today, pride is usually viewed as like, you know, maybe a little bit annoying at, at worst, 
But in some circles in our culture today, it's actually looked at as a virtue, right? We start to actually convince ourselves that it's something we need if we want to be strong and we want to be confident and we want to be successful. But the Bible teaches something much different about pride and how it impacts our life, how it impacts our relationships. And the topic of pride draws some really strong words from the writers of Scripture. And I don't think they're by accident. In fact, I think they're very intentional. Proverbs 16 says, The Lord detests the proud. They will surely be punished. James 4, 6, but he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Strong words, right? And so I think it's very much worth our time to start to explore and ask, well, why, why are such strong words? And what is this sin of pride? Right? Pride is this over-concern with myself. Pride is this desire to want to be noticed. It's the love of supremacy. It's guiding our conversations always back to ourselves and our accomplishments and our giftedness. It's enjoying being flattered. Right? I've, I've discovered that whenever you find someone really prideful in your life, they're actually some of the most easy people to manipulate. I'm not saying that you should manipulate them, but it's quite easy to manipulate them with flatter because you know what it is that you know, kind of moves them. You know what gets their attention. Right? Pride is loving to see your name at the top of the list. And one of the challenging things, again, about this topic and diving into this is that pride can take so many different forms in our life. So I'm going to talk about just a couple different forms that pride can, can have in our lives. And the first one is self-centeredness, right? Self-centeredness, that's a form of pride in our lives, and it shows up in all kinds of different ways. One of my favorite ways that it shows up, you ever look at a group picture that you're involved in? Who's the very first person you look at in the picture? It's yourself, right? We all do that. It's so funny. A couple weeks ago, I had this picture of myself, my wife, and our little daughter. And I was going to post it. I've learned my lesson that I always allow my wife to double check my pictures before I post it. I'm like, look, I'm going to post this picture. I think this is great. She's like, you think that picture is great? She's like, my eyes are closed, right? Our, our, our little baby girl's looking down at the ground. I was like, yeah, but I think it's a great picture. She's like, you think it's a great picture of you? I'm like... Yes, I think it's a great picture, right? I, I would, that's kind of what we do. Scripture has this to say, the book of Proverbs says, whoever loves to argue, loves to sin. Uh, raise your hand if you have at least one person in your life that loves to argue, right? Raise your hand if you are the person that loves to argue. Yeah, some people just love argue, right? It's like a sport for them. And arguing can be fun until you end up single and have no friends, right? Uh, but whoever loves to argue, loves to sin, whoever brags a lot is asking for trouble. Right? We've all seen this play out in our life, this, this sin of pride, this sin of self-centeredness, right? It often comes across as a critical heart. Nobody around you can do enough to please you. They can't make you happy. Nobody's ever quite enough. This pride of self-centeredness will ruin the quality of your relationship because it basically approaches every relationship from the standpoint of how does this impact me? What can I get out of this? And again, it shows up in lots of different ways in our life. Uh, yesterday, uh, my wife wanted to go out to lunch and my wife, you know what her favorite place to eat out 
is, you'll, you'll never guess it, I won't even ask you to guess. Her favorite place to eat out is Olive Garden. She loves Olive Garden. I, I really don't know why. Uh, I think it's a place that her dad used to take her when she was little, but I'm not necessarily a big fan of Olive Garden. And I know I'm probably gonna get in trouble by telling this story because there's probably somebody here that owns an Olive Garden. So I'm sorry in advance. You know, I, I don't, is, I, is Olive Garden Italian? I think they kind of position themselves as an Italian. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what it is. Um, now, the thing I do love about Olive Garden, and I would tell all of you single guys, if you can find a woman whose favorite restaurant is Olive Garden, you should marry them. Uh, because you can go there and for less than $10, get all you can eat breadsticks, soup, and salad for under $10. Now, yes, you're having to give up some things for that value, such as flavor, right? <laughs> uh, but it's under $10, right? So we walk into this Olive Garden. I'm not super excited about the experience we're about to have, but she wants to go to Olive Garden, so we're going to Olive Garden, right? And we walk in, and it just, it was everything I was imagining it would be, right? And so we go in, and we're kind of waiting, and somebody finally, you know, takes us to a seat, and they're like, you know, we'll get you a, a height chair, because we had the baby with us. And so, you know, I'm standing there at the table with the baby who's fidgeting. Five minutes go by, there's still no height chair. I start looking around the restaurant for a height chair. I don't know how much time passes, but eventually the height chair comes out. By this point, you know, our pepper, our little one, is like just kind of freaking out. So I get her in the height chair. We wait another five minutes before anybody even kind of like shows up. And I'm not, this isn't necessarily true of all of Olive Gardens, okay? This is just my experience yesterday. But we wait forever. Somebody finally shows up. But then we finally do get to the all-you-can-eat breadsticks and all-you-can-eat soup and all-you-can-eat, you know, uh, salad. And, and honestly, it's really, it's not that bad. But like the, 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 the poor waitress was just struggling. She was struggling. Nothing was, came out at the right time. The kids' meal that we ordered came like 30 minutes after we had already gotten our... It was just one of those experiences, right, that was not the most positive. And all I could think about was how late I was going to be. Why is this taking so much time? You know, like I'm just I'm frustrated by the whole experience. And we're driving back, and I'm kind of giving my wife the silent treatment because she is so passionate about Olive Garden in the first place that we had to go there. And she's like, what, what's the matter with you? And I'm like, I kind of start, I'm like, I'll tell you what's the matter with me. And I walk through the whole checklist of all the things that irritated me about this entire experience, right? And so we're just kind of, I, I feel like right now I'm going to end up getting a lot of Olive Garden gift certificates for Christmas <laughs> next year. That's not funny. Uh, <laughs> But, but and, and she's like, well, had you ever thought about that woman, the woman who was our waitress? I, I don't know a lot about her. What I do know is that she was, was much older than a lot of waiters or waitresses we typically have. Um, she was most likely not born in the U.S. More than likely, she's probably in her first week at this job. That would be my guess, right? She's but, you know, here's a lady who's probably working really hard to support her family. She's in a place that she wouldn't necessarily call home. She's trying to learn English as a second language, right? She, let's just be honest. She's probably at her age, not exactly where she thought she would be in her life. And she's just doing the best she can. And all I can see 
is all these negative experiences and how it was an inconvenience to me, how it's making me late, how this didn't line up with my agenda, and how I hoped all this was going to work out. It's the sin of self-centeredness. And it shows up in so many different ways in our life, right? Here's another form of pride, self-reliance. I have a real problem with this one, too. Anybody else here just sometimes struggle with asking for help? And I know as men, men tend to struggle with this a little more than women, although we can all struggle with this, right? We struggle with asking for help. Why is that? Because we're prideful. We actually start to think that we don't need other people's help in our life, that we can do it on our own. And I'm going to say something to some of you that you might find this a little bit offensive. I might step on your toes here, but like somebody needs to say it to you. Like some of you think that you can stop the addiction all by yourself without asking for help. And you need to humble yourself. Some of you think that you can pull your marriage out of the ditch that it's in right now all by yourself. You don't need any marriage counseling. You don't need any guidance. And you need to humble yourself. Some of you think that you can overcome the anxiety and the fear and the depression that you're feeling in your life right now all by yourself. And you need to humble yourself. Some of you think you can raise your kids right now without seeking guidance and help. You need to humble yourself. Some of us have actually convinced ourselves that we can navigate our way all the way through life without submitting our lives to the Lordship of Christ. And we need to humble ourselves. Proverbs says this, Proverbs 10 verse 4, In his pride the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts there's no room for God. Right? It's this idea that somehow we can navigate all the challenges, all the problems, all the different things in our life on our own. There's no room for God. It's the pride of self-reliance. right? And, 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 and we fail to see our need for help for other people, for God in our life. We fail to see that the need for redemption. We fail to see our need for growth in spiritual matters. Some of you have reached a place in your spiritual life where you're like, I got it. I got this thing down. I figured it all out. I, I've grown as much as I don't, I don't need to grow anymore. Right? It's self-reliance. It's another form of pride. That's self-deception. And this is a... This is a form of pride that we actually don't talk about a whole lot, but man, it impacts a lot of us. And there's a lot of examples of this all the way throughout Scripture. One of the most notable, one of the most tragic, one of the most dramatic examples of this in Scripture would be King David, right? Here's King David, who we're told is a man after God's own heart. But he had some issues, right? And one of them was certainly pride. So when David was supposed to go out to war... He doesn't go off to war. Why? Because he thinks he's above the rules. When he first puts eyes on Bathsheba, instead of looking away like he knows he should look away, he doesn't. And he continues to lust after her in his heart. And he thinks he's going to get away with it because he thinks he's above the rules. And so when he summons her to his quarters, he does so because he thinks he's above the rules. The day that he has her husband killed so that he could be with her even though he knows it's wrong he does so because he thinks that he's above the rules and then one day a guy by the name of Nathan 
who's kind of been a prophet, like advisor, comes to David. And he's like, David, I'm, I'm going to tell you a story. So it says the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, which that's, that's weird. I'll be honest with you. That's weird. I, I have... I have goats, and they're cute. I, have a, I had a baby goat this week. Uh, just surprised. I don't know where. It was a baby goat. Just showed up. Super cute, hopping around all over the place. I love that little goat. It's not going to drink from my cup. It's not even going to get close to my cup, right? But it drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. So David hears this little analogy about, you know, this goat, and he freaks out. And then Nathan said to David, hey, you're the man. You're the man. That's exactly what you did on a whole nother level, right? We're not really talking about a little ewe lamb that a poor guy had. We're talking about the fact that you killed a man to steal his wife, and you never could see it. You couldn't see it. You couldn't see your own pride. But now I tell you this little story and all of a sudden you get really passionate and really angry. You see the injustice. You can see the pride in somebody else, but you can't see it in yourself. And what some of us need to be reminded today is you're the man, right? You're the woman. You're involved with some things that you know aren't right, but somehow you've convinced yourself that you're above the rules. Right? That you're above the consequences. And if you and I went out for lunch, just shared a meal together, and you started telling me about this thing that you're involved in, and I said to you, do you think that's a good idea? You'd probably say, no, don't. If I were to say to you, do you think that this is going to work out well for you in the end? You'd probably say, no. If I were to say, would you encourage one of your friends to do the same thing you're doing right now? You'd be like, no, I would never do that. Say, if you were to talk to one of your kids, would you encourage them or tell them that this is like a wise thing for them to do with their life? You'd be like, never, I would never do that. And yet somehow you've convinced yourself that it's going to work out well for you, that you're above the rules, that you're above the consequences, that you're not going to be impacted by this. And so I've got to ask you, is there an area in your life right now where you think the rules don't apply to you? You have convinced yourself that the natural consequences of sin that you have seen play out in hundreds of other people somehow is not going to impact you. That you're going to get away with this. It's the sin of pride. When I was uh, growing up, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. And there was a local news channel, WSMB Channel 4. That was like the channel we watched growing up. We didn't mess with the other channels. It was always on Channel 4. 
And so I grew up watching Channel 4 News, and there was a sportscaster by the name of Rudy Kalis. And I, I, as a, even as a small kid, I was way into sports. I loved sports. And watching Rudy Kalis, like, interview, you know, my heroes in the sports world, like, I thought Rudy Kalis was, like, the coolest guy in the world. It's like, I want that job when I grew up. And he'd interview local sports people, but he'd also get to, you know, uh, interview national sports stars. And I just thought he was a, uh, an incredible, so I grew up, literally grew up. This guy was on the air for like 30 plus years. So I grew up watching this guy. And I remember as I got older thinking, there's something different about this guy. I don't know what it is, but the way that he carries himself, the way that he interacts with people in interviews, there's just something kind of different about him. Years later, I discovered that he was actually a believer. And uh, we got to have some interaction together at a church that I pastored, and we actually did some events together, and I grew to like just appreciate this guy and his humility more and more and more. And so I want you to hear just a little bit about Rudy's story, so watch this. The hardest thing for me in my life, it's... It's pride. It just eats me up. I'm in an ego business where you walk around and you want to be recognized. You're full of yourself. You get to go to sporting events. Excuse me, I've got to go do interviews. Everything in my work is to be first. Jam it down, people. You know all the answers. And so if you deflate me, it just kills me inside because I'm not worthy. I wasn't born in this country. My parents are Russian. In World War II, my father was in the Russian army, was captured by the Germans. He met my mother in a refugee camp in the southern part of Germany after World War II. In 1952, they immigrated to the United States. I think about that and say, how do you make that kind of a decision? How do you decide that you're gonna leave that country and go to another world? Well, I'm a little five-year-old kid. I got a seven-year-old sister who's a little older than me, and we got on a ship, and I can still remember the smell of the steel. It was the biggest thing that I'd ever seen, and we got on board and came across. It was like an adventure to me. And I can remember cruising into New York Harbor. It was in June, a sunny day. I remember seeing the Statue of Liberty. Didn't have any idea what it was, but saw it, looked at it. A lot of people were lying on the deck, and a lot of them were crying. My dad told me afterwards, because they were concerned. Now, what are you going to do in this land? I remember going to school in kindergarten. I'd come home crying about every day, because I didn't know how to talk English, and thought the kids were laughing at this dumb little foreign kid. My mind was out the window. My parents would keep saying to me, Rudy, why can't you get grades like your sister? Why can't you study? And education was key to them. Not all of us, but a lot of us, one of two things happens. That uh, we get in those formative teenage years and either somebody, and, and I had a coach or parents without knowing it, would say to me, what's wrong with you? It never amount to anything. Or a coach, you can't play a lick. You don't have any guts. What's wrong with you? You can't get into the game. Get somebody else in here. And it, boom, it sinks down inside of you. Or else if you're fortunate, somebody says to you, you're magnificent. You know, mathematics and your music flies from you. You're going to be great someday. And I've realized at this point, it's not all of us, but there are a lot of us that have spent the rest of our lives trying to either prove somebody right or prove somebody wrong. I think I've tried to prove somebody wrong ever since. I flunked out of college after a year, wasn't smart enough though. Went in the military for four years. Came back and took a radio production course. I thought that'd be so interesting. I knew I wouldn't be good enough to be a professional athlete, but if I could be around him in broadcasting, 
I finished four years of college in three years. I think I was trying to prove somebody wrong again. I got a job in Green Bay, Wisconsin. It wasn't even in news. I helped a little bit, and then after a year or so, a year and a half up there, the sports director quit. And I thought, ooh, you know, I'm making $8,000 a year. And they said, well, we're caught off guard, so why don't you fill in for a little bit of time? And I did, and after a month, they had a consultant group watch, and they called me into a room, and these two guys sat at me and said, Rudy, why don't you get out of broadcasting? I mean, you're a nice guy, sales. You're, not, you're just not suited for broadcasting. Ooh. There again, not good enough. What's wrong with you? Why can't you study? All of this sort of stuff inside of me. So I didn't want to take no for an answer. Sent out tapes, and one of them was to Nashville, Tennessee, and they hired me. And I thought, this is my career. This is where I'm going. It's kind of neat. People recognize you. I was 31 years old. I was so busy trying to be somebody. I was married, and I wasn't spending any time at home. I was so busy that my wife and I separated. You know, I was too immature, or for whatever reason, it just broke me. I'm driving down the road one day, and I pound a steering wheel in my car, and I'm saying, God, help me. I'm 31, and I haven't been in church since I was 18 years old, because I didn't want to be around phony Christians. And I go into this restaurant, and this man walks over to me. And he wasn't even from Nashville, but he walks all the way across, comes and looks at me, and he says, are you all right? You look like something's bothering you. And I, no, no, and he said, wait. And he sat there, and he told me about hope, told me about a God who loved me, a Jesus Christ who had died for me. These things that I'd heard way back then, these seeds that had implanted when I was back in grade school and high school, none of it was alive. And all of a sudden, boom, it's hitting me right between the eyes. I said, what is this? I said, God, if you're for real, I mean, I'm a reporter. You're going to have to show me. This is going to have to be consistency of time. And all of a sudden, I began to listen to other people, and I began to look at other people, and my life began to change. I began to see that, that the way I do my work imp impacted other people, that I could be cynical, I could be negative, I could be critical, which is so popular now. Somehow we think that people that are in your face and know it all, that it's a sign of intelligence, and, and that's bull. It doesn't work that way. It's not the way God intended it. And God began to make me look into other people's eyes and to listen to them and to realize that I impact thousands of lives by the spirit with which I do my work on television every single day. I've realized that the more I've grown in Christ, the more my life is diametrically opposed to what's considered successful in this business. And the glory of having him inside of me now is that I realize my purpose is that this sports casting and the work that I do is a vehicle to touch people's lives with his spirit. And somehow he knew that this little immigrant kid who stumbled around and made all these dumb mistakes, that he could mold him and shape him and make him go through things that he didn't want to go through, but that he could use them at the other end of his life in a way to touch other people's lives. My name is Rudy Kalis, and I am second. Isn't that a cool story? <clears throat> you know, what was so interesting to me, I was just thinking about is, uh, I told you growing up, I, I knew there was something different about that guy, but I never heard him, you know, mention the name of Jesus or talk about his faith when he was interviewed. You know, I, I never heard that, like, come out of his mouth, but at the same time, I could see it in him. That's what happens. 
when the humility of Christ overcomes your life. And so I'm going to talk, just wrap this whole message up, give you a couple just practical application things about how we can conquer pride in our life, okay? And the first one is this. You have to learn to acknowledge pride. You have to learn to acknowledge it. Proverbs 29 says, a man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. That's exactly what Rudy was just talking about, that he learned through the lowly spirit, not having to build his own ego up, not leading with his ego, not inflating who he was or his giftedness, right? Not being overly confident, right? That lowly spirit in that he gained honor, he gained influence. And so for most of us, again, it's really hard to acknowledge the pride in our life. It's really hard to even see the pride in our life. And so this is where you got to surround yourself with people who can speak truth in your life. How are you doing at that? See, again, one of the problems that we have is it's always easier to see pride in somebody else. Right? You see it all the time. And when you see it in somebody else, it drives you crazy. You're like, why, why do they act like that? Why do they talk like that? It's so easy to see it in somebody else, and, and it repels us. But then we can't see it in our own life. And so if throughout the course of this message, you've been thinking about somebody else who really needs to hear this message, I would encourage you to stop right now, because this is about you. And this is about me. Humility, which we are called to cultivate in our lives, is not about convincing yourself that you're unattractive. Cultivating humility in your life is not about convincing yourself that you're not gifted or that you don't have some kind of purpose, right? Sometimes I hear people approach humility in that kind of way. I used to have a friend that we would pray together a lot, and he would always somehow work into his prayer, Lord, make me nothing. And one day I finally said to him, I was like, hey, Craig, I don't know that you should be praying, Lord, make me nothing, right? Because, like, God is 100% capable of making you nothing. But he didn't make you nothing. He gave you some gifts, and he gave you abilities, and he gave you a personality, right? If God wants to make you nothing, he can make you nothing, but he didn't. He's giving you gifts and abilities and purpose. And so humility is not about making yourself nothing, but it's trusting God and trying to bring him honor with your gifts and the abilities and the experiences and the personality that he's blessed your life with. Second thing you got to do is you got to learn to love instead of being loved. Scripture reminds us that just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right? So in the same way, Jesus' purpose in this life was not to show up to be served, and if anyone could have shown up to be served, it would have been Jesus. But he showed up to serve, right? Not to be loved, but to love. See, when we have pride in our lives, we have pride in our hearts, we're far more concerned with other people's perception of us than the actual reality of our hearts. I wrote this this week. I said, we fight the sins that have an impact on how others view us, and we make peace with the ones that no one sees. Let me read that to you again. We fight the sins that have an impact on how people view us, but then we make peace with the ones that no one sees. See, pride is hungry for attention. 
It's hungry for respect. It's hungry for worship in all of its forms. So maybe for you, pride in your life looks like you don't have the ability to say no to other people because you have this feeling inside of you that you need to be needed. Maybe it looks like for you this obsessive thirsting for marriage or fantasizing about a better marriage because you're hungry to be adored. Maybe for you it looks like uh, being haunted by your desire to drive the right car, to live in the right house, to have the right title because you're hungry for the approval and the glory of men and not God. Right, this has been an area for me that I've had to battle my entire life. My entire life, I have been a people pleaser. And being a people pleaser and being in ministry is a very dangerous combination. Right? And so often, if you're a people pleaser, from the outside, it looks like you're a really nice person. Right? You're easy to get along with. People tend to like you. Right? People respect you. Right? It, it, it's real easy to start to convince yourself when you're a people pleaser that you're really a loving individual because you're so easy to get along with. But the reality is, for those of us who are people pleasers, our main motivation often is not to love, it's to be loved. So the reason that we do the things that we do is not because we want to be a loving person, but because we want to be loved, we want to be adored. right? And, and, and it's possible to go through your whole life thinking that you're being loving when in fact you're just wanting to be loved. And part of humility is learning that you can't please everybody. Not everybody's going to love you and like you and respect you. That's not the way it works. And if your desire is to be loved instead of being loving, ultimately it will lead to a prideful heart. And it's not humility. The third thing I've had to learn in combating pride in my life is, is, is this idea of learning to love instead of judge. And one of the things that comes along with pride, I already mentioned this once, but is this critical spirit. And while pride causes us to look past, right, the evil that we see in ourselves, it also causes us to look past the goodness in others. So you kind of sift other people and what comes to the bottom of your perception of them is not the goodness in their life, but the negative. It's the things that you don't like, right? This is what happens sometimes when I'm sitting there and I'm listening to Pastor Brad's message. And I'm like, oh, this, this is a great message. This is a great message, right? And I do exactly what I kind of got on to you guys a minute ago for doing. And I start thinking about, oh, wow, like there are some people in my life that really need to hear this message. Same things happen sometimes when I'm reading through Scripture. I start reading through Scripture and I ignore, right, the work that the Spirit wants to do on my heart. And I start daydreaming about this incredible Instagram post I'm going to write that's going to put everybody in their place. Or this incredible message that I'm going to give that's going to be so convicting for people who struggle with this, but not me. Right? That is a temptation that comes along with pride. And sometime this week, I promise you, you're going to be tempted to judge somebody. You're going to be tempted to pass judgment on somebody, pass an evaluation on somebody for something that they did, something that they said something that they practiced, something that they wore. I have no idea, but you're going to be tempted to pass judgment on them. And it's going to feel so good to tell somebody else about what that somebody did that you thought was so wrong. And that's pride. 
And if I want to combat that, what I have to learn to do is to see the goodness in other people and focus on that. And then at the same time, look at the things in my life that don't match up with God's word, that don't match up with what God's called me to do, that don't match up with what God says, and allow the spirit to do that kind of surgery on my heart. And just stop worrying about everybody else around me and the life that I think they should be living. If we just did that one thing, if you just took that one piece of this message and you went this week and you stopped worrying about what you think God needs to do in everybody else's life and you started to focus more on what God needs to do in your life, it would change everything. So I would just encourage you to take this serious. Because pride has destroyed a lot of lives. Pride has ended a lot of marriages. Pride has gotten a lot of people fired. Pride has destroyed relationships between fathers and sons and mothers and daughters. It's destroyed friendships. It's destroyed churches. And this is an opportunity to step into the kingdom and to be freed from the stupidity and the painfulness that comes along with trying to be the general manager of the universe. To be freed from this desire to think that everybody in your life exists to make you happy and to meet your needs. To be freed to live the life that God actually has for you. Because when you learn to develop humility, when you begin to shed the pride in your life, oh my gosh, the connections that you have with people, the way that God can see, uh, use you, the way that you can see the possibilities for your life, it opens everything up. And so my encouragement for you this week, whatever form of pride you struggle with, identify it and go after it and say, that's not what my life's going to be about. I want to learn to develop a humble spirit. I want God to work in me and through me. I want to take the attention off myself and my giftedness and my desires and my needs and my wants, and I'm going to put other people first. And when you do that, you start to live the life that God designed you to live. And I promise you, you will never, ever want to look back. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. God, we thank you for opening the spiritual eyes of our heart in this moment to see something that we often cannot see in ourselves, which is pride. And my prayer for every one of us is that we will not allow pride to get us to a place in our life where someone has to confront us like Nathan confronted David. But the reality is some of us need to be reminded today that we're the man, that we're the woman, that we're the ones guilty of thinking somehow that we are above the rules. Somehow we've convinced ourselves that the consequences of sin that we've seen so many fall into is not going to impact us, that somehow we're going to get away with it. God, pride blinds us to seeing the places in our life that we need to grow, that we need to develop. So God, I pray that you will wreck that inside of us, every one of us. Not that you'll wreck us, but that you'll wreck the pride in us so that you can do the work that you've desired to do in our lives for so long. God, I know that this work is not easy work. And it takes a lot of prayer. And it takes a lot of practice. And it takes a lot of humility. And it takes a lot of accountability and opening our lives up to other people so that they can speak truth into us. But God, I pray that you will give us the courage and the faith to do exactly that so we can live these lives that you've called us to live.
For it's in your holy and your precious name that we pray. Amen. Um, before you go, I'm going to encourage all of you to do something. Those of you here in Plymouth and those of you in Brighton, uh, you saw what I think is maybe the most creative announcement video that I've ever seen, highlighting some incredible opportunities that I think each one of these requires you to drop your pride and develop humility. We've got a marriage night coming up. I want to encourage you to be a part of that, right? We have a worship night coming up. Worship forces us to drop our pride and develop humility as we honor someone so much greater than ourselves. And we have baptism coming up. Some of you, for one reason or another, maybe it's pride, have not taken that step of obedience to get baptized. And I'm going to encourage you to take that step and just see, just see what God does in your life. Love you guys. Hope you have an amazing week. Join us next week as we continue this series. God bless.